Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, Over the next three weeks, um, I think what I think what I'm like to do is we just come down a little bit. uh, Is really give one long talk, uh, one very long talk, um, split. I hope just into three. I hope, I I really hope. Um, But. Just to start by putting putting that in context, or a, a little bit putting it in context, um, for my for me, uh, and I, I would guess for most of the teachers in in this tradition, um, most of uh, the talks that I give or, or a teacher gives um, include quite a lot of advice, if you like, or uh, practice possibilities, tips, techniques, techniques, etc. Um, regarding all kinds of uh, life challenges, uh, difficulties, um, situations, uh, dukkha, emotional, psychological, um, spiritual, to do with communication and speech, uh, relationship, relating, sexuality, work, body, etc., etc. And also, quite a lot of um, guidance and very detailed often about the lovely side of things and how, how uh, meditation can deepen into very lovely spaces uh, and navigating all that. Uh, so all of that is in most of the talks, or some of that is in most of the talks, um, and or most talks try and sort of explain the Dharma, if you like, try and actually explain what that teacher's take on the Dharma is. <clears throat> so, and or, um, all that's in the library. Uh, <laughs> and also on Dharma Seed. And of course, when you come to interviews, I really hope that you feel met and that you feel engaged with with what you need, uh, practically speaking, something that helps, a shift of something, a tool, something or other. I really hope that's the case. And sometimes what a person needs is just to be listened to. So these talks or this talk is not so much any of that. Something different, a different different, uh, purpose, if you like. What I really want to explore is the assumptions underneath how we think of and conceive the Dharma, practice, the path, etc. It's not often those, the way we think and conceive of, of the Dharma and the assumptions underneath how we're thinking of and conceiving of practice, path, Dharma, are not often at the forefront of our minds. They're sort of somewhere at the back, and the assumptions are often really buried. They're not often what we investigate. They're not often investigated. So I would like, if possible, to shine a little light on that whole level of things and question, question. So really, this is about questioning. So three talks over three weeks is, is a long trajectory. And, and I'm, I'm very aware um, that when there's a long structure like that, it's actually hard to 
for a listener to, to hold it together and to see how, how things are fitting together. I'm very aware of that, even when there's a linear structure. I've done that in here before in different other retreats. Um, and the structure of these talks is even not so linear. So we'll be touching on something, mentioning it, coming back, returning, etc. Um, what I really want to do is open out, open out a whole area, open out what may have become quite entrenched and unexamined ideas that actually have a lot of power in our lives and, and in relation to our practice. So I hope each talk stands alone, but really it's the three together. Uh, and I'll basically do the best that I can with what I think is a, a really enormous and enormously important uh, area. Okay, having said all that, you are free to leave now. Uh, I, I mean, seriously, I mean it. If you, you feel I'm not up for that, that's cool. So, it's not a joke, I'm serious. <laughs> yeah, you really all want to stay? I, I don't take it personally. Okay. All right, so I mentioned this in, in, in the talk that we gave the, uh, on, the, on the first morning about samadhi. Just looking around us, even just at Gaia House or the Insight Meditation Tradition, what a huge range of views there exists uh, or is on offer to us of what the path is, um, what the goal is, actually what the Dharma is. It's, it's actually really, really wide and quite divergent. Uh, there's a range of views that we, all of us are going to encounter. We do encounter it. And so even regarding something like awakening or enlightenment, I was uh, speaking on the phone with uh, uh, actually a teacher in another country just the other day, and he's been in the Dharma scene internationally for, I think, more than 40 years. So he's really quite long-standing. And he was asking me, has there been a shift I'm not sure if I'm seeing this right. Has there been some kind of shift over the years and over the decades in relationship to awakening and the questioning, the question of awakening? And we were talking a little bit, and I think I would agree with, with him that he, he is picking up a shift. If you listen back uh, if you, to talks from the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, etc., there is a shift. There has been and is a shift. And... Looking at that whole area what, of the uh, concept of awakening, what, what sometimes we see over the, those decades in this tradition is a disappearing, a disappearing of any reference to that word or that idea, awakening enlightenment. It not, is not referred to much or referred to much less. It's not used very much. It's disappeared off the scene a little bit, or quite a lot in some instances. So that's one uh, trend. A second trend is that the meaning of awakening or enlightenment has, if you like, been lowered, really. It's become a much, uh, much less of a big deal. So that sometimes, very popularly now, what it, if it means anything at all, if a person uses it, it kind of means being in this world without selfing, which so what does that mean? It means dragging in the past and projecting the future, dragging in the past resentments and obscurations of papancha, etc. Uh, being in this world without that, um, freshly, so that the process of the psychophysical organism is just unfolding to reveal fresh, direct perception of this world. And that's what awakening has come to mean uh, for some people very popularly. 
That's a second trend. A third trend uh, is actually a kind of ossification. The whole idea of what awakening is has become almost like unquestionably, uh, rigidly set. It's this. Uh, and that happens in a lot of different traditions, in some of the insight meditation traditions, but also some traditions outside. For instance, the Advaita tradition. If you listen to someone who claims awakening, it's always the same story. The same story. What's going on? It's the same, da 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 and then I stop trying, and now I have no self, and I never have any self. And of course you could say that uh, same, same ossification in other traditions. So if either disappearance, or lowered meaning, or ossification, this rigidity of ideation of what we're talking about, if any of those are occurring, why? Why? Why has that happened? What's gone on? What's underneath those trends? And if you're listening and you think in relation to the fact that it may be getting much less frequent, it may kind of have disappeared, or it might have lowered its meaning, and you kind of think, so what? Uh, you're very free to think that, but I would again ask, why do you think that? What's going on in your, que in your response of so what? What's underneath the so what? So there's this range. There's a huge range. And wrapped up in the range of the kinds of dharma there are, is, is uh, wrapped up in that is the sense of where we're going, what we want, uh, what the goal is, if you like. So to compare a few sort of different packages, if you like, of, of dharma and goal. Some, for some people, for many people, what the dharma is, is really uh, the attempt, if you like, or the aspiration to live a life of presence, to be present to life, to live a life of mindfulness, and that's pretty much it, maybe kindness as well. Living a life of presence and kindness. Connected with that, I'm going to run through a whole list here. Connected with that is, Peter says, I want to live life to the full. And that's the sense of God. I want to be alive. And then another package. These are actually not separate. They're more like currents that exist, so they can overlap and get mixed, etc. But to, to artificially separate them a little. And for some, it's more a kind of, no one really uses this phrase, I don't think, but it's a kind of what we could call existentialist dharma. The awakening there, if you like, is realizing the existential limits of our existence. We're um, impermanent, fragile beings cast into a world we don't really understand that appears meaningless to us, and uh, we have to accept that, bear up to it, open to it, be brave enough to see that, deal with it. The suffering that comes in is kind of neurotic in Freud's sense of refusing to suffer. Uh, that's his definition of neurosis. Is, is refusing to accept that this is our lot. Once one accepts that and the limitations of that, that's the kind of awakening. Uh, and again, there's another 
model, if you like, or package, where the human being is really seen, uh, people don't often say this explicitly, really seen as a kind of biological machine, a very sophisticated biological machine, evolved, of course, over millennia. And practice and meditation and mindfulness and all this is really optimizing the functioning of the nervous system of that machine so that it runs more smoothly, so that it doesn't create problems uh, that may have been there from the hardware. Reprogramming the software within all this, and that's the reality it takes place in. Very different, and a further kind of model or package is what, where we're going, what you want to see is that you are awareness. You're not any of this mind and body, you are awareness or different versions, actually everything is awareness, it's all one, or it's all love. These are different uh, insights required uh, as a sort of goal insights. Or, we want to know something that is transcendent to this whole realm of appearances and experience, transcendent even to awareness. Or, we want to understand that all this is empty, all of it. Mind, body, biology, matter, awareness, space, time. There's a whole range. So what do I need to understand is empty? And that would be one model or one thrust as well. May, oh, there are many others, but maybe there's even something beyond that. So these are currents, as I said, not, not completely separate. To say, again, I said I think I said last time, we are, in principle, free. In principle, you are free to believe and think whatever you want. In principle, you are free to hold any view. But really, what I want to ask is, are we really free? Are we really free to inquire into the views that we hold? Or are we blinkered and blinded by assumptions that we don't even realize that we have? So in principle we're free, you can think anything, anything you want, have any view you want about the Dharma. But are we really free to inquire? Now, as I talk uh, today, and as you will um, probably quite quickly realize that I have my biases in, in that range of, uh, of, of examples I just gave. Um, of course I do, everyone does. Um, so please don't be uh, biased by my biases. And, and, and you know, if you don't agree with my bias, that's completely fine. What I really want to get to uh, is th the importance of questioning. Not that I want to convince you of a certain bias I have within that range. The questioning is the important thing. Okay. Now, if you see yourself as a Buddhist, maybe some of you do, maybe a lot of you do, um, we have, as Buddhists, a common language, usually, the Four Noble Truths. Uh, and so it can seem, because we keep referring to things like the Four Noble Truths and things like awareness and th this kind of common language, it can seem that we're all uh, really talking about the same thing. It can seem that way, but it might be an illusion of the language. If one looks uh, into the Pali Canon, the original set of teachings of the Buddha, um, it's hard, uh, it's actually impossible, to, to, to not realize that 
the, the goal that he was talking about, the third noble truth, involved ultimately not being reborn again into this world of samsara. It was an ending of rebirth that was equated with a final awakening. And we can try and erase that, whatever, because we don't like it, it's not the way we think nowadays, etc. But that's there. It's a transcendent teaching. There's a thrust of transcendence that runs through Pali Canon teachings. And we don't often talk about it these days, but it's there. If nowadays, uh, even in this room, how many people even believe in rebirth? Like really believe in rebirth? Some. Probably, I would, my guess is less than half of the people in here, but who knows. Um, most people don't. So if I take away ending rebirth as, as equating that with the goal, the final goal of the path, the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, the whole structure starts to become, it loses its substance. The four noble truths become more like a skeleton. They need fleshing out, and they'll be fleshed out very individually. And I, I use the ske word skeleton very particularly. What does awakening mean to you nowadays? What, where is this path going, the direction of it, the third noble truth? There's a huge range there. And if the third noble truth, the end of dukkha, is different, then, of course, the first noble truth is different. What are we even talking about when we say dukkha? With those two being open, liberation is open to def be defined in different ways. Dukkha even is open to be defined in different ways. Of course, then the second noble truth, the cause of dukkha, what leads to dukkha, and the fourth noble truth, the way, will also be opened. They're multiply, uh, available to multiplicity of interpretations and directions. And those interpretations will affect the whole package, the whole thrust, the whole tenor, flavor, feel, mythos and ethos of what we call the Dharma or what the Dharma is to us. Massively, massively. In all kinds of ways, big ways and little ways. So even just the meaning of insight, the place of insight, what it means and what place it has, or mindfulness, or coming from that, going even smaller, more particularly, the place and meaning of, say, samadhi. And we talked about that in the first talk. So, just briefly to see, if, uh, for instance, in the Mahasi tradition, the Burmese, uh, one of the Burmese schools, insight for them is being able to dissect reality, to dissect the world into atomic units of cessation and matter and uh, moments of time and consciousness and perception, etc. That's insight. That's what you need for deep insight. That definition or thrust of insight automatically implies something about what samadhi is and what its place is. It needs to be small. It needs to be very uh, focused and very narrowly focused. In some, con contrary to that, in some, some Soto Zen schools, the everyday and the ordinary is what's important. There's this elevation of the ordinary. And so samadhi as a kind of non-ordinary range of states becomes irrelevant, has no place, because it's not ordinary. In many of the Advaita traditions, what's axiomatic and cardinal is there's nothing to do. Don't do, actually, is the instruction. 
So samadhi automatically is a non-option because it must involve doing. In the kind of packages that are about being with life, being with experience as the path, samadhi seems like it's not. It's not being with life. Something else happens. Life seems to disappear and just become a radiant ball of nice energy. I'm not then being with life. Or in the existentialist schools, assume this is what I need to be with, this existential situation, again, it becomes irrelevant. Or if the view of the Dharma is really what we're doing is releasing, purifying old wounds, old hurts, old karmic knots, healing childhood trauma, then actually samadhi, and that, those kind of states, are regarded as escapes. Spiritual bypassing, as the phrase goes. And that phrase has become so entrenched to become almost unquestioned as a concept. Better in that package, better the more miserable you are, the better, because that's the real purification. Then you're really with the real stuff. So all this is there in big ways and small ways. And, and coupled with that, the relationship with goals itself and the relationship with doing, and some of this we touched on in, in, in the Samadhi talk as well. I was talking with someone recently. We did a, a bike ride for Dance, the Dharma Action Network for Climate Engagement, uh, from Exeter. Well, all that I did was from Exeter to Guy House. It was about 20 miles, 30 miles, 20 miles, something. More. It was a lot. Um, and uh, took all day. And... Um, and was talking with someone about the whole relationship with goals on the path. And what's the difference between goals on the path and doing a bike ride like that? It took work. You pedal. It's beautiful scenery. Lovely company. Sangha. Some hills. Some freewheeling. Some hills you had to stop, wait for the others to catch up, take a breather. <sighs> Lovely. Why is that different than the notion of goals and, and doing on the path? What's the difference? Or how does it become different? All this is involved. Predisposition to certain styles. So I was talking with someone who said, I, I want simplicity, I want simplicity. And this is absolutely pervasive in the Dharma world, not just the insight meditation tradition. Um, simplicity becomes so important for us. Why? Why? What's going on there? But, so there's predisposition, there's also assumptions and ideologies about simplicity. An awakened person is a simple person. The path must be simple. Practice must be simple. Simplicity is where we're going. Why? Where do we get that from? So there's predispositions, but ideas, ideologies underneath, propped up by assumptions that are not usually investigated fully. So the whole dichotomy between being and doing would be another one. So most Buddhists, or most people that come to this kind of scene, come because, not everyone, but most people come because they want to reduce suffering. That's what the offering is, that's the advert for Buddha Dharma, is reducing suffering. Let me ask you, after uh, the sort of stress or patterns of stress or patterns of anxiety, uh, the patterns of neurosis, the inner critic and all that, after that's gone, 
and, and it can go. It's, it's a matter of practicing in the correct ways. After that's all gone, then what? Then what? And even after one's so-called awakening, then what? Then what? Why are we practicing? What is this path for? What is your path for? Why are we here? Why are we, what are we doing? It's interesting in relation to freedom in uh, the modern Western world where there's a lot of comfort and safety, generally speaking, of the modern West. Um, deeper levels of freedom, if we're talking about freedom, are hardly ever tested and they're hardly ever visible. So maybe there's only subtle differences evident between, for example, someone who's really just practicing mindfulness in an ongoing way, just ongoing application of mindfulness. Compare that with someone whose meditation is open to a vastness of awareness, and if everything is awareness, and they're practicing with that, they've seen that and they're opening to that. And compare that second one with someone who's seen that all awareness, vast or small, personal or impersonal, is empty. How visible will the freedom, the difference in the level of freedom be from the outside? I mean, sometimes from the inside, the little stresses that come with the overwork, uh, pressures, the demands, the pace of modern life. Why are we practicing? What are you wanting? What are you wanting? So, of course, we want to reduce suffering. Everyone, uh, everyone's interested in that. But is that all it is? So I would say for most people who love this, who are really into Dharma, whether it's insight or something else, it's actually not just the reduction of suffering that we're here for. That's actually not all it is. Is there not, in the way that you feel and relate to practice, a whole kind of mythos, a whole kind of ethos, a whole kind, particular kind of beauty that you relate to, that speaks to you, that touches your soul, a whole wrapped up in that, a whole way of seeing existence. And is that not a big part of what we are attracted to and why we are practicing and why we are here? And each teacher who sits in this spot uh, over a year or whatever it is, or other retreat centers, if you listen to them, it's not actually just a reduction in suffering that they're teaching that they're communicating. They're communicating a whole ethos, a whole mythos, particular to them. Uh, a whole particular kind of beauty and a whole particular kind of way of seeing existence. And with that, particular emotions and particular values get either elevated or, or less so. So, it's interesting, as practitioners, some are really happy with efforting and striving and a sense of goal. It gives them a sense of nobility. There's a nobility in that striving. There's a mythos in the striving. For others, the striving, the effort, I can only find an ego, an ego measurement relationship with it. And it's painful and it's tight and it's not authentic. And some practitioners love, absolutely love, to the core of their being, the sense of meditative depth that can open up. They love it. 
They love the subtlety, the refinement of consciousness. They love the mystical openings of perception that can occur. They love uh, the exploration of different levels and states of consciousness and perception. And for others, they are completely not interested in any of that. Just utterly, utterly not interested. And there is more, this elevating of the ordinary. Ordinary every day. The mythos of the ordinary. Or the elevating of our existential situation as true, undeniably true, as common sense. It's common sense, our existential situation. Hiding the fact that there is a mythos wrapped up in that. It's a claim of truth, undeniable fact. Wrapped up in it is a mythos. A myth. A fantasy. In, if we just stay with this question of freedom, awakening, liberation, are we free, am I free, are you free to inquire into freedom, into liberation? Are you free to inquire into what liberation is or might be or what you assume it is or any of that? Or is the notion of freedom boxed in somehow? Is it merely received, unquestioned? People say, it's this, not that, or it's that, not this. Or, it's not possible anymore, or it is possible. Or when a senior teacher gets into some kind of scandal, they say, ah, you see, we're all scoundrels, it's all a load of rubbish. And there's a tightening of the whole view. Are there different freedoms? the different kinds of freedom. Now, of course, there are social freedom, political freedom, economic freedom. We could, that's a whole other thing. And there's even different freedoms in relation to what I was take, talking about before, different packages. But even then, are there different freedoms, other kinds of different freedom? Or is the very notion of liberation, can it sometimes be boxed in by the very teachings themselves? By the very structure and starting point of the teachings, the notion of liberation itself gets boxed in. Is it possible that liberation, freedom, is actually ever expanding? Could it be something ever expanding? It realizes in a box, breaks the walls of that box, finds itself in another box, breaks those walls keeps opening up a freedom to think, to question any box. To question, to think in directions and in areas that hadn't even occurred, to open up freedoms that hadn't even occurred to one before. Usually freedoms that may not usually even be part of the awareness or the discourse of insight meditation or Zen or Advaita or Ridwan or whatever other traditions there are. Didn't even think in that way about freedom. <clears throat> so what do we want? What do you want? Uh, I'm, I went, ran through a whole list before very briefly, but let's pick, pick out some of those and un unpack them a little bit. Um, so this life of mindfulness or presence or wanting to live life to the full uh, is a very popular notion and not just in Dharma uh, circles. People want to go parachuting before they die, or whatever it is, or if you know you're going to die, you go on an exotic holiday, or packing experience. And it, 
maybe just maximizing pleasurable experience, maybe just wanting intense experience, somehow wanting live, to live life to the full, what does it mean? In these kind of circles, it gets more refined than that. So it's just about the presence, the fullness of presence. I don't need to go bungee jumping, but I want to live life to the full. How many people uh, think that way and say that way? Do I dare to ask, why? Why do I want to live life to the full? Why? Why do I want to savor the moment, savor the experience, the taste, the breeze on the cheek? Why? It seems like the most obvious thing. Do I dare to ask why and what's underneath wanting that? Is it because that's what the Buddha taught? That's what he said? He taught about savoring the moment? Is it because otherwise I feel I'll miss all there is? Because what else is there but life? Or is it because I think, well, that's what's real. That's what's real. It's not in the Pali Canon. That's not a, a, a thrust uh, of the teaching that's in the Pali Canon at all. You never find very, maybe a subclause could possibly be interpreted in that way, here or there. But generally the Buddha is not saying, savor the moment, live life to the full. That's, that's not what he's teaching. That's not there. You can't find it there. The actually very lovely little placard by the wash-up area by Thich Nhat Hanh, be mindful when you're, paraphrasing, be mindful when you're washing the dishes because we want to be present, because if you can't be present to that, you won't even be present to enjoy your cup of tea. You'll miss life. That's not in the Pali Canon. That's not uh, what the Buddha was teaching. Now, we may or may not care what the Buddha said, and that's something I'll come back to. That's actually important. In a non-modern, non-Western culture, say medieval Europe or an Asian culture, that, that is nowhere, nowhere seen as the goal or the purpose of practice, to live life to the full. They wouldn't even know what we meant by that. If you were talking to a, a medieval European or an and want to live life, they just look at you utterly baffled and perplexed. They're not interested in living life to the full. And it's not only because they believe in heaven and hell and that's more important than this life, or they believe in rebirth. Life, L-I-F-E, that word, is, was, in medieval Europe, experienced utterly differently. And in Asian cultures, it actually talking about a different thing. So when we say life, what do we think we mean? Or what do we mean? We tripped off the tongue so easily, life this, life that. What do we actually mean by it? And what on earth do we mean by living life to the full? Being with life. What we usually mean is being with life as we experience it, uh, and, and we take that as being reality. So there's something about reality assumptions wrapped up here. Something about reality assumptions wrapped up in that whole rhetoric. Is it reality? What we call life and assume so readily I can be with it, etc. Is it really reality? Or is it empty, as the Buddha? And Buddha's teachings would say they're empty. Empty, it's not reality in the, in the sense that we think it is. And just in terms of cultural differences, we 
modernists, if you like, uh, scientific materialists, secular humanists, we assume, don't we, that we have already or that we can strip off our beliefs, strip off any beliefs and any projections and approach life and experience life, life in inverted commas, as it is. We assume that way too readily. Is that really the case? We may perhaps assume if those medieval uh, Europeans weren't forced to believe uh, some church dogma, they would actually see and experience life, in inverted commas, straightly and directly as we do. Purely, without the projection. So this is a very, wrapped up here, very, very popular notions nowadays hidden in to the usual way we talk about mindfulness, the usual way we communicate mindfulness teachings, are a whole bunch of assumptions, a whole bunch of unexplored assumptions about reality. They, mindfulness and all that, and presence and being with life, has found its way into the culture too. It's informed the culture, the Weltanschauung, the worldview. Probably more importantly, the current worldview, the current modernist worldview, has found its way into the Dharma, has impregnated the Dharma with its assumptions and its views. Um, you see it all over the place, all over the place, in the movies, in Hollywood, etc. Now, I don't know if you, any of you saw this uh, twee little movie, About Time. Did anyone see that? It was quite cute and, and a little bit funny. And, uh, I can't quite remember. It's about a guy that the, the, the males in the family can, can travel in time. Cool. Uh, they can, I think, go back and do something again. And, um, and so this guy realizes it and he does that. And he goes back to rectify when he's made an idiot of himself where he hasn't impressed the girl that he wants to impress. He goes back and then gets to impress her and stuff like that. And he's talking with his dad who has had this ability for a while. And it runs on and it's funny and, and cute. Um, but at the end, or towards the end, there's a sort of moral that is uh, given, partly explicitly and implicitly. And, and the dad kind of says to the son, look, it's all, it's all great, this ability to do this, but now actually I don't do it. And the most important thing now is being with experience, being with actuality as it is, without changing it, living to the full, living each day as, as if it's your last, being in the now, savoring. I can't remember the exact words, but that was in the sort of little moral of it. And implicit in that, in quite a slightly confused way, because it was involved with time travel and all that, is this idea, this is reality. This is reality, and therefore needs to be respected. But if one realizes that this is not reality, this is not reality, that now, Without saying it's something else, this is not reality. Without saying reality is something else, this and now are not. What if one realizes that in whatever way? It's not reality. Then that whole rhetoric and elevation of this and now collapses. It loses its meaningfulness. It loses its primacy. Its power and its appeal uh, are tied in with and they come from hidden metaphysical assumptions about reality. 
I have to just mention as well, this is an aside, but I have to just mention, also in that film, and so often in Hollywood, what's elevated as well as really mattering the most, being most significant, is human, uh, a close circle of probably family, human relationships. This is what matters, especially in the light of death. This is what's most significant. At the end of the day, this is what matters. The small circle of close human relationships. And that's part of the message and not the wider totality of human beings, and not the relationship with nature. So this is part of a message that's getting communicated. It also comes into the Dharma sometimes. Um, but then what happens in relation that, why do we not care about so much about the climate? It's because we're getting fed a certain message about what's important, what matters. That's an aside. So about this mindfulness and presence and living life to the full, could we separate mindfulness as a simple strategy, as one strategy among many possible strategies, one way, a strategy of dealing with and coping with and responding to perceptions, thoughts and feelings, separate that from mindfulness as a kind of religion, an unconscious religion, a religion that poses as a-religious, or assumes it's a-religious. And I mean relig- religion in the worst sense of the word here, uh, in, in terms of being full of unquestioned, uh, in this case, modernist assumptions. Maybe reductionist materialists, maybe other. Full of unquestioned assumptions about reality. If we don't separate those two, what's a simple strategy, one among many, from what's a kind of wrapped up with a whole ideology, it has a lot of consequences for the range and the power and the depth of my investigation and for the range and power and depth of experiences that open up for me. And both of those, my investigation, my experiences, a lot of um, what could be very beneficial and very insightful gets circumscribed, gets limited. The range is limited. So mindfulness, let's explore this a little bit. Mindfulness as a kind of coping strategy for the sake of reducing suffering, okay? Here's a question. Is that enough? Is that enough? Being mindful in order to reduce suffering. Is it enough in the sense of will it reduce enough of the the suffering, enough of the dukkha? Does it go deep enough as a strategy? But even more than that, and I just mentioned this because I talked about it in other talks, I won't get into it today, but is the whole thrust of wanting to reduce suffering, the whole tenor and thrust of that, is that enough for us as human beings? Is that enough for the soul and the psyche? What happens to eros? What happens to passion? What happens to soulfulness? when that's the totality of the direction. Is it interesting enough, wide enough, rich enough uh, as a philosophy or as a psychology? I'm not going to, I'm just going to throw that out. I've talked about it in other talks. I'm not going to talk about it today. It's the other piece that I want to dwell on today. 
Because often this mindfulness or being in the now is seen as, as, a, as a coping strategy, as a way of being, uh, a way of being in our assumed real existential predicament. Things are impermanent. Things are uncertain. Life is uncertain. Death is coming, that's certain. Uh, we're living on shifting sands. The reality of things is just flow. Everything is moving. This is our existential predicament. It's assumed real. And so mindfulness is the way of meeting that, coping with it. So rather than seeing meditation and mindfulness then as being part of a thrust of understanding reality, seeing a deeper level of reality, in this case, reality is given with common sense. Listen to the words, common sense. Maybe we throw in, and the self is momentary, a momentary arising process, which is not so obvious common sense. But that's about it. Reality is given with common sense, and we cope and deal with it, and be with it. So this opens up a really interesting thing. Some people, some practitioners, they have a meditation experience and it therefore becomes a truth. In my meditation, I pick one example just because it's very simple and common. Um, in my meditation, the sense of awareness opened out, was vast and enormous and beautiful and unchanging and everything else was coming and going within that and it seemed eternal. And then everything seemed like it was awareness. And I say, it's true. How do you know it's true? Well, I saw it in meditation. And someone else goes, so what if you saw it in meditation? It's just your brain doing weird stuff because meditation's a weird thing and it affects your neurons. One view, another view. Is there an alternative? Or what might be an alternative? One possible alternative is actually seeing what happens exploring the range of perceptual change in and out of different states of meditation and understanding how those perceptual shifts dependently arise and dependently cease. That would be an alternative. But what I really want to say here is, look, there's a question here, is there not? How are we going to know and how are we going to decide what is real? This isn't abstract because this affects the whole texture of your sense of existence. The whole sense of meaningfulness in your life, the whole vision and feel of what your life, existence and practice is depends on what you believe is real or not and what's not real. How are we going to know? How are we going to decide? In philosophy, ontology is the study of what is real and what is not and how real, etc. Ontology always comes into it. And epistemology in philosophy is the study of how we know things, how we know, for instance, what is real and what is not. Ontology and epistemology uh, are part of what in philosophy is called metaphysics along with cosmology, which means what is this universe that I'm in and how is it ordered and what's its structure? It's impossible to get away from that. It's impossible to get away from that. 
you can think you're away from it, you can assume you're away from it, it's impossible to get away from ontology, epistemology, cosmology, metaphysics. And always we have to assume something. There's always an assumption that ends up being actually unprovable. Always. Interesting predicament. Maybe that's more our existential predicament than what is usually regarded as our existential predicament. So that whole list before, let's pick out another one. This biological machine. It's rare that you'll get a teacher or someone actually staring you in the face and saying, you are a biological machine. You are basically uh, evolved over millennia a, a sophist very sophisticated, breathtakingly sophisticated uh, neurological machine and biological machine. Um, but sometimes that is underpinning, that view, if you poke at it, is enough. It's underpinning a, someone's presentation of what meditation or mindfulness is, etc. You can repro learn to reprogram the software of this uh, astonishing computer. And sometimes I'll show you slides, they will show you slides of the brain and how people with mindfulness do a lot of mindfulness practice. A certain membrane in the brain grows a little bit thicker or this... I don't know the words, so it gets a little bit bigger or smaller or this or that. So sometimes even the hardware of your machine can even be affected just a little bit. But what we want or what's possible is that machine, that biological machine that you are, can be made more efficient. Its neurological functioning can be made more efficient, a more smooth process can ensue, and any unnecessary suffering uh, that comes with the hardware uh, before the updated version or whatever, uh, unnecessary suffering can be minimized. View, ideas, a certain kind of very thin uh, mythos there. There was a retreatant here, I asked his permission to share this and he was fine with it, um, a while ago. And he was struggling in meditation, sort of mind drifting as well, and then he came up with a way of, a way of doing it for himself. And, and he had a little bit of paper and he was doing the noting technique where you note uh, rising, falling for the in-out breath or uh, hearing or thinking or whatever it is. So he was doing that and he decided actually to write down uh, what happened very quickly. And then the words were too big so he had little, little sort of symbols for in-breath, out-breath, thinking, um, etc. So he had this, and he showed me this little grid chart of a meditation set. It looks like a, a kind of machine code thing that you would, you would put in it. And then after a little one, and he said, actually this really helps him. I said, okay, never, never come across anything like this, but go for it. And then, then, he, then he said, well, actually, I found out a way I can do it on my iPhone with the, and then he was explaining to me the technicals I, I didn't understand. So he was sitting there in meditation, and he would punch out at his noting in, in this code, and it would look like, literally, like some kind of esoteric computer code. That was his meditation session. But he said, the mind is bright, and it's really less entangled. How do you feel about that? Probably some people, great, fine, I think I'm going to try it. No phones. <laughs> no phones. And some people will feel uh, somewhat horrified. Yeah? Why? Why are you horrified? I, I'm, I, it, I don't like it. That's, again, my bias. But that's not, that's not what I'm, I'm not, I want to distort with my bias. The question is, why are you horrified or turned off if you're turned off? 
Is there not a cosmology, a sense of what the human being is and what the setting is for our practice that is woven into our very view of what practice is, the ethos, the, the, the feel of it? So for some people, uh, one of my teachers used to say, um, give walking instructions, and they were very vague. It's like, a human being walking on the earth, and another teacher I was talking with years later, he always used to say that. I was like, I don't get what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> And, and I wanted to ask this second teacher, because I really related to that, I, I wanted to ask this second, second teacher, okay, so if some machine could be invented that replicated the exact sensations of, say, walking on, um, with bare feet on damp Devon grass, um, that exactly replicated, but you were actually inside a machine. So the, the purpose was the same, sharp mindfulness of sensations. How would that be? fulfilling the same purpose, is it not? Or is it? Because the cosmology is different. The whole feel for existence and where we are and what it means and what is beautiful and what is deep, it's different. So all this is wrapped in. So this biological machine is very popular now. It goes back to the scientific revolution and, and the so-called Western Enlightenment in the 17th century. The idea of the universe as machine, little billiard balls of stuff set in motion somehow and then mechanically just interacting with each other, ricocheting, independent of human observation, ind certainly independent of God and all that. And then in time, you are a machine within this machine. And now you are a computer within a big computer, whatever it is. And it becomes a truth, becomes a truth. And we forget it's a model, it's a way of looking. It's a, it's a very helpful model, you see, medicine, technology, a lot comes out of that model. But is it a truth? Reductionist materialism. About a hundred years ago, physics, which set the whole thing in motion, started to question very, very powerfully, pull the rug out from that whole model as a truth. Relativity questioning that objective, independent existence of both space and time, and in quantum mechanics of the idea of reality being made of little billiard balls which are independent of the observer, exist at a certain place in a certain way. And also in Western philosophy, starting around the same time, interesting, Husserl and people with phenomenology. So this idea that that is a truth, it works, but is it a truth? The idea that it is a truth is actually outdated by at least a hundred years. So any dharma that's based on that as truth is actually outdated philosophically and intellectually. Okay, then there's this existentialist one I mentioned where we're sort of cast, thrown into, to borrow a phrase from Heidegger, I think, cast into a meaningless world, uh, usually of matter, of this kind of independent, soulless matter. Strangely, a strange existence. Uh, perhaps alien. Somehow I'm conscious and the rest of it, it's not. Strange, alien. An, I mean, an alien existence. Death will come and death will be an annihilation. And either that's just bleak or it's terrifying or it's uh, what came to be called in the Romantic movement sublime, a mixture of terrifying and kind of awesomely beautiful, uh, to be faced with the abyss of all that, the meaninglessness and the death and the annihilation. We are at sea in this. 
and the fragility, etc. And this is taken as fact, as truth. And there's only one appropriate and honest response or feeling in relationship to that. Anything else is denial or dishonest. This is the view. So Pascal, uh, Blaise Pascal, I think, I uh, can't remember when he lived, but um, a mathematician, he also invented the barometer as a philosopher. Uh, I am terrified, he said, I am terrified by the eternal silence of the infinite interstellar spaces, of the infinite. I am terrified by that. But that and the whole feeling in relationship to the existential uh, situation, can you not see, can we not see they're from the view of self. It's the self, the belief in a self, looking out as this as reality that feels that way. It's completely dependent on self-view and reality view. Some people, and I'm one of them, absolutely love the interstellar spaces. I love it. It does something in my heart, my soul. It I does not bring up terrifying uh, feelings for me. And people go deep in meditation, and there's a sense of opening up to that infinity. And they actually grow to love that. So some people say, this is as good as it gets, impermanent, fragile, dukkha. How do you know? How do you know? How do you know it's as good as it gets? Have you really investigated? You really checked it out? Some people say, there's nothing beyond this. There's nothing beyond this axiomatic, there's nothing beyond this. What do you mean by this again? What do you mean? Poke, question, what do you mean by this? Do you mean matter? Or do you mean appearances? Appearances. Big difference in what, what is meant. If I, you mean matter, what is it? What is it that you mean by matter? If you mean appearances, there's nothing beyond appearances. Again, what exactly do you mean? And do you understand through meditation the dependent arising and the dependent fading and cessation of appearances, all appearances? So that there can be a beyond this, a beyond appearances. This is available in meditation. Some people say, there's nothing transcendent. But in meditation, it's possible, it's possible to transcend, to go beyond this, beyond appearances. If we go into matter and the physics of matter, and you go deep, 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 and what you get, you get atoms, and then you get electrons and protons and neutrons. They're not little billiard balls. They're not little packets of energy, or they're not even waves. What you get, actually, push a physicist, what are they? Well, you can see them in different ways. What are they really? Well, I don't know. We have an equation. What's the equation? It's a transcendent mathematical entity. It's an abstract mathematical entity. If, if you know Schrodinger's wave equation, it, so if you have three particles, and three electrons, let's say, um, the wave, func what's called the wave function, like how it actually is, it's an abstract mathematical entity that exists in nine dimensions, three times three. What does that even mean, nine dimensions? And when you square that in nine dimensions, you get the probability, the probability of where this thing, which isn't really a thing, is if you observe it. <laughs> if that's not transcendent, I don't know what is. 
It transcends what we usually mean at all by any it or any this or anything indeed. Heisenberg, uh, Werner Heisenberg was at the forefront um, about roughly 100 years ago of, of the quantum revolution in physics, a really radical thinker, wrote a little book called Physics and Philosophy, which is very, very good. What is an elementary particle? What is an elementary particle, he says? We say, for instance, simply a neutron, but we can give no well-defined picture and what we mean by the word. We can use several pictures and describe it once as a particle, once as a wave, or as a wave packet, but we know that none of these descriptions is accurate. If one, want, if one wants to give an accurate description of the elementary particle, the only thing which can be written down is a probability function, what I just talked about. But then one sees that not even the quality of being, that, that it is or is not, not even the quality of being, if that might be called a quality, belongs to what is described. You can't even, you're not even talking about something that is or is not. It is a probability for being or a tendency for being. The elementary particle of modern physics is far more abstract than the atom of the Greeks or the little billiard ball idea. The ontology of materialism, this is a separate quote, the ontology of materialism uh, rested upon a kind of illusion that things at that level exist in the way that we feel that things at this level exist. You can't extrapolate, he said. Atoms, subatomic particles are not things. They're not things. They're not energy or wave packets of energy or waves or little billiard balls. They are not things. Someone at conference recently said, we need to be based in reality. We need a dharma based in reality. Look, guys, it's been almost an hour. Are you okay if it's a little longer? Ten? Yeah? Okay, thanks. Um, we need a dharma based in reality. What do you mean by reality? Material? We need dharma based in what is material? Is that what you mean? Uh, do you mean what's tangible, what's kickable, to quote Samuel Johnson, what's measurable, what's publicly shared, what's socially agreed upon? Is that what you mean by reality? What's secular? What's bound by logic? So this, this is the common notion, that, that package is the common notion of what we mean by reality. But matter does not, certainly doesn't fulfill all of them, doesn't fulfill even very many of those factors. An electron is not bound by logic. It's not... Uh, it's not A is not non-A or whatever the thing is. It's not that. It's somehow a superimposition of not not being this or that and both. Doesn't it's not it doesn't fit that. What do we mean by reality? How are we defining reality? And in the existentialist kind of dharma, I think it's fair to point out uh, or ask a person: Are you attached to a certain view? Are you attached to a certain view of existence for some reason? And what reason? Is there something you are getting from a fantasy of regarding as truth the self in a certain way in, terms of, in, in relation to an existence which is taken as real and claimed as truth and then claiming all that there's not a fantasy of self and reality involved? Is there not a mythos in what you are describing and taking and, and declaring as truth? So living life to the full, mindfulness as a coping strategy, 
optimizing a biological machine, the existentialist. These are all, all quite popular, uh, and mixtures of them, etc. Why? Because they fit the modernist assumptions and views, because they fit the cultural zeitgeist, because they fit the Weltanschauung, the worldview of, of the cultural mo modernism. None of them are particularly, to quote the Buddha, hard to understand, hard to see, deep. Uh, easy to explain for a teacher, for me, is easy to explain, easy to understand, easy for you to understand if we talk in that way. Uh, there's not a lot of subtlety, not much is needed in terms of meditative depth or meditative skill, intellectual understanding, not much in terms of deepening levels. I can talk about software, hardware being set because of evolution when we were still in the jungles, and now you're stuck with the hardware, but we need to twiddle with the software a little bit because uh, there's some stuff that causes suffering now, and you all will not blink. It's easy. If we have something very different, something non, not any of that, it's difficult, it's difficult. I have to start unpicking at things and questioning assumptions and building things, much more difficult. Ortega y Gasset, a Spanish philosopher of the 20th century, said, philosophy and philosophers should lift up the skirts of the culture. It's a great image. <laughs> Do you understand what he means? <laughs> What's hiding? under the skirts. What's hiding under the skirts? Don't even realize it's there. Philosophy, philosophia, love of wisdom in the broader sense. Beauty, depth, questioning, philosophia, lifting up the skirts of the culture. So, views and ideas, especially at the level of background underneath assumptions, are crucial. And crucial, again, that word crucial uh, is from the Latin crux. Crux meaning cross. It's a crossroads. The views and ideas we have, if I have this one, I go down that, that road. It, it unfolds certain experience. If I have this view and idea, this assumption, it unfolds another one. I go different, different ways at the crossroads. Crucial. Being with life, being with experience, etc., then things like the whole realm of the imagination become irrelevant, waste of time. Say, so, well, the Buddha in the Pali Canon doesn't recommend imagination. That's I'm not sure, but um, uh, so it's not because it's not real. It's because working with the imagination doesn't uh, lead to the unfabricated, to the transcending of appearances. And that's what the goal was in the Pali Canon. If, like Mahayana teaching, say, I'm not, the goal is not this cessation in the unfabricated. Rather, I want to see that everything is empty. That opens up a place, for example, for imagination, and hence Tantra, and the, and the use of imagination. Uh, someone was telling me, <clears throat> they were having a difficulty, and uh, a friend said, I can't remember what it was, and struggling a little bit, and a friend said, love the five-year-old in you who felt uh, this certain way. Love the five-year-old little girl in you who felt a certain way. And she had done a lot of that, and she just, in that moment, I just, I've, I've done it, I've been there, done it, I can't do it anymore. I just, it's done for me, that whole way of thinking and relating is done, and it won't work anymore. She had had, um, over quite a lot of years, 
very rarely, but three or four experiences of a figure that came to her imagination, very, very powerful, at first um, oppressive, connected with a depression, uh, a, f a figure with a skin like a, a dark black uh, snake, pitch black. She called him the Black Devil Man. And it was tied in with her uh, depression. It's a very oppressive at first. Over years, something changed and actually culminated in uh, a sort of explosively erotic account encounter with him. Um, and that opened up all, all kinds of uh, things for her, changed the whole uh, psychological dynamics within her. So instead of going to the five-year-old within, she went and stared into the eyes of this black devil man. And she said, unbelievable, strength and power just suffused her, and the suffering was gone. It took about two seconds. So she was completely surprised by what happened. Wow, she said. Wrapped up in that, again, let's poke at some assumptions, because we tend to assume, well, that, that black devil man had nothing, in co no source in her history, wasn't related to anything in her past, some story, something that happened, nothing at all. The five-year-old, we tend to think, is more real. There really is this five, or it relates to the real five-year-old that she was. Or do we consider it being more real? If we... Uh, experience the five-year-old feeling this or that, are we assuming that it's a living relic, that she, he, is a living relic of my past history and my family? Am I assuming that the way I remember is accurate and true? Do I dare to question this? We tend to think that five-year-old uh, is related to life again, and the black devil man is not, is fantastical. What do I mean by life? What's wrapped up about reality assumptions there? People sometimes say to me, when I was six months old, uh, this happened, and I felt this way, and I've really felt these feelings, and, and, then th and because of that, I am now have these problems. Is that not a theory? Do I... I might have experiences that I feel that I remember. It feels like a memory of what happened at six years old. And that I'm po positing that as an interpretation, uh, a positing that as a cause for what happened now. Someone else was telling me recently, I know this from my own experience, working intensely in certain kinds of psychotherapy and all this stuff coming up, stuff coming up, stuff coming up, very intense and difficult. And then wondering, is it really true stuff? And the therapist saying, you've got to hang in there, it's a dark night, it's, it's, you, know, you can't run away from it, it's the truth coming up. Or is it, the very, is it the fact that psychological ideas, certain psychological ideas, are stimulating certain experiences? That the experience, rather than being real or true, is actually caused by certain ideas? So, unquestioned ideas, and not just I'm like this, I'm a failure, or I'm this kind of character, and not just about my story, but about reality, what's real and what's not. About the cosmos, about the goal of practice, about even things like the role of childhood uh, in, in, in the development of the self. Unquestioned ideas operate in us, they operate, and they will keep delivering 
unquestioned ideas will keep delivering the same limited range of experiences and the same dukkha and the same sense of existence unless they are questioned. They will operate and they will keep delivering the same range of experiences. Jung, Carl Jung said, ideas are not made by persons but persons by ideas. We don't see how powerful ideas are because they, they shape the way we see ourselves and the world and existence. And then that's the existence that we feel ourselves move in. They conjure our experience. People want to say, I'm not into that. My practice is very non-conceptual. I go for non-conceptuality. Or say, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not an intellectual. I don't, I don't do all that. Or if they are a little bit intellectual, say, I don't do metaphysics. I don't do this questioning of what's real or questioning of how we know anything or deciding on what the cosmology is. This is dangerous. It's ha 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 because always, always these assumptions are operating. If I think I'm non-conceptual, I am conceptual. If I think I'm not intellectual, ideas are operating. If I think I've put aside metaphysics, it's an illusion. So. to conclude, or today at least, how can we expose the ideas and assumptions that are operating for us, and how do we expose those ideas? How will we inquire into whether an idea or an assumption is true? How? And if I find out that it's not true, is it that another one is true? What other ideas are there? What other views of existence, of practice, of path, of awakening? Is a whole, wholly different relationship with fundamental ideas about reality, about cosmology, about knowing, all that. Is a wholly different relationship with fundamental ideas possible? And, 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 and can that bring very different ways of, of seeing and feeling existence? Ideas are powerful and we don't realize how powerful. They will influence, they do influence uh, everything. Big ideas, big ideas can open up the whole sense of existence, the questioning, the perception, everything. And that opening up won't happen just by being with or just by being with my feelings. Uh, if I'm being with, with, with the same unquestioned ways of looking, unquestioned conceptual framework, as such, unquestioned metaphysics, really. I somehow need, we somehow need to question and to put in new ideas. Somehow. Okay, end of part one. Uh, let's have a bit of quiet, huh? <clears throat> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.